It's a pleasure and a privilege to host this second panel today. And this whole, this whole day on um, the second day of Sonic Acts is um, it's just such a ride um, about art, the necessity of art and uh, intersectional solidarity and ways to overcome um, the horrors of capitalism, of uh, colon uh, algorithmic colonial oppression, any kind of oppression and uh, exclusion that's happening. Uh, first talk will be by Ramon, who is a lecturer at Goldsmith uh, in various departments, the Visual Cultures Department, uh, Research Architecture. Got his PhD in The Hague, if I'm not... Uh, sorry, Goldsmith, but you were, you were a fellow in The Hague and a fellow at the New Institute. See, I fucked up already. Um, please give them a warm welcome. It really is a pleasure to share a stage with Flavia. Thank you very much for that presentation. Absolutely wonderful. Um, so we, we have a lot in common. Um, we both teach in uh, art programs. Uh, we have a penchant for tattoos um, and jewelry, obviously. So uh, <laughs> it was a good curation. Um, but thank you for the organizers of Sonic Acts, uh, Yoha, everyone involved uh, for having me here today. Um, due to time, I'm just going to launch right into it. So uh, here we go. <laughs> Inhuman being as noun or being human as praxis towards the autopoetic turn overturn a manifesto Sylvia Winter introduces the concept of autopoetically instituted living. For Winter, autopoetic instituted living is the dynamic site of empirical ordering set forth by the conditions of colonialism and the extension of the humanist project into the construction of the ideal form of man. The architecture of this project was dependent upon, as Kara Keeling has argued, the positioning of the racialized body as visible only in as much as they could be brought into being via empirical forms of knowledge. As consequence, returning to winter, these spatial temporal coordinates are not only predicated on the humanist imaginary, but, are, but also constitute a quote, law-like correlation between our modes of knowledge production and the auto-institution of our social realities. The auto-institution of social reality is an important notion in Winter's thesis as it illuminates the colonial relation as the product of an extensive network of data that are extracted from the site of the colonial coordinate, a coordinate that, comp that comprises what she calls the bioepisteme, an operative function that replicated the ordering of social reality through data and the imaginary of hierarchy. For winter, however, the system is recurrent. It's organic and self-producing of the relations found within it. In this case, the continual reinstatement of whiteness as the center of species and relation. The centering enacts a fictive mode of truth or what Lewis Gordon defines as white prototypicality that understands itself as a standard to which the ideal model of species exists. Gordon turns to Winter's interpretation of Fanon to illustrate the psychic strain this imposes on the racialized figure within an autopoetically auto instituted living system. Umberto Maturana, Francisco Varera, and Ricardo Utraib developed the concept of autopoiesis to explain the phenomenon of living organisms and their cognitive capacities. An autopoetic system, therefore, is an enclosed and autonomous system that distinguishes living from non-living systems. It describes living organisms as self-producing and the nature of perception and intelligence as subject-dependent. 
Autopoiesis is also a generative process of recursive recreation, particularly of the self. According to Macharana, Varela, and Utribe, an autopoetic system is realized in a particular structure and is independent of its environment. A key point of the concept of autopoiesis is the relation Macharana, Varela, and Utribe establish between closed recurrent systems and cognition. In general, cognition refers to the assimilation and use of knowledge, and as such is limited to beings with complex nervous systems, such as humans. Although research on cognition has advanced significantly, Macharana and all believe that both cognition and perception are linked in the operation of the nervous system, which is realized through the autopoiesis of the organism. Since the survival, of autopoetic systems depend on the continuation of recurrent interactions. Consequently, the organism retains a knowledge, if only implicitly, that extends to cover the organism's various interactions. In other words, as Maturana et al. described, the organization of cognitive systems themselves define the domain through which they act. And here we can I'd like to pick up on Flavia's presentation and thinking about the naturalization of whiteness at the apex of species within the organic system of relation and how this forms actually a precipice for knowledge in itself. In applying the autopoetic schema to the colonial imaginary, Winter grasped the layered patterns of global systems of knowledge, such as colonial and imperial expansion, which function as categorical systems that produce and reinforce cultural and political ideologies through a series of codes. Winter surmises that the enactment of the code of what constitutes colonized life operates at the level of the psyche, which is furthermore entangled in society's systems of learning. It is believed that these codes must necessarily correlate or even determine the studies of humans' nature and the terms of social praxis. Winter also associates the construction of autopoetic social practice with the instrumentalization of science. To do so, she turns to the episteme, a scientific term also adopted by Foucault in Archaeology of Knowledge to describe the coexistence of a set of relations that form the conditions of possibility or knowledge in a given historical period. Foucault initially restricts the episteme to the distribution of scientific knowledge as a mode of power, but extends the concept in later writings to account for other forms of knowledge produced outside of scientific inquiry. As Foucault has argued, they remain invisible, concealed, or, quote, epistemologically unconscious. Foucault has shown the episteme operates under discrete forms of mundane practices and solutions. Furthermore, the episteme is a means by which the other is not only brought into being, but made visible as difference in itself. Here, the other embodies the normalizing forces of power, in this sense, instrumental reason, which is executed under democratization of calculus, and I would say the fictive illusion of democracy, of democracy within algorithmic culture. By this, Foucault means the integration of dynamic modes of ordering and organization in society. These forces are reinforced through the enforcement of the right to disseminate rhetorical truth, and that Flavio was saying, the right even in itself to assign identical, a, a category of identity. 
An immediate parallel is drawn between Foucault's outline of power and subject composition and Fanon's assessment of colonialism and the constitution of the colonial subject. A proposal Fanon puts forth in his Tunis lectures, arguably prior to Foucault's notion of biopolitics, and I love to debate this later. While both Fanon and Foucault are concerned with the distribution of power, their schematics depart in their unique treatments of the initial conditions from which the other is constituted. On the one hand, Foucault presupposes a more general distribution of the means of power that brings the other into view. And although Fanon does not mention Foucault explicitly, he is critical of discourses that prioritize the means of sub subjection as universally embodied. In other words, as if the species, as if everyone that is enacted in the sociality of species is treated as equal. Fanon places particular emphasis on the construction of race as the negation of being where the subject is brought into being only in as much as it can be disregarded as a non-subject or subject of non-existence. In black, in black Skin, White Mass, he argues that the epistemic relation of what he describes as a drama of discovery precedes the enlightenment principles of man and the fantasy of a world built in his image. Fanon, like Foucault, situates surveillance as a mode of visibility a technology through which colonialism distributes power as a suspicion of the other. For Fanon, the colonial view is, much, is as much a part of the constitution of the colonized body as it is the embodiment, embodied effects of biological sorting. This composition extends beyond the corporal body and into the universal perceptions of blackness which is exposed by stereotype and emboldened by the distrib distributed power of interpolation. It rearticulates the framing of life and death put forward by Foucault and Mbembe as that which instead exhausts simultaneously within the composition of the colonized. The colonized body in this sense lives as a universal form of history, yet is exposed as a negation of life itself in the physiological expression of the present. The result is what Simone Brown calls digital epidermalization, or methods by which power is exercised through the disembodiment of the other under the gaze of surveillance and other technologies. Here, Brown demonstrates the fragility of the technological gaze, which is enacted under the alienating logics of truth and categorical reason. Nonetheless, in doing so, Brown builds upon the dissonant relationship Blacks have, with historic, have had historically with Anglo-centric technologies. As Brown argues, understanding this relation is fundamental to any discourse on surveillance and the ethics of technology. This is particularly important considering the prevalence of discourse today that centers the technical object as the subject of investigation without thorough or any insight into how these technologies and the social space are shaped by colonial and imperial expansion. By connecting data into power and knowledge, researchers can be implored to consider how data might replicate the immediacies of discrimination and determinancy. As Brown has shown, the logics of classification are enduring in their ability to stall the building of self-knowledge and world-making in the present, while also regulating the existence of certain bodies even after death. They also speak to the immediacy of shaping public life. 
In the panoptic sort, political economy of personal information, Oscar H. Gandhi considers the role data and classification play in the reduction of life chances under what he terms a panoptic sort of data. Gandhi conceives of the panoptic sort as a type of data that extends beyond general surveillance and the panoptic paradigms of disciplinary power, as theorized by Foucault. To the contrary, the panoptic sort is a, quote, all-seeing discriminatory apparatus that classifies individuals on the basis of their estimated economic and political value and is continually optimized for the efficient transfer of value into data and information that, as argued above, dislocates and disassembles bodies under the temporal and spatial objectives of the institutions that own and circulate this data. And at this point, I would like to distinguish between data and information, data being the discrete points that are captured and information being the patterning and a cohesion of that data. For Gandhi, statistical classifications reconfigure the universal position of surveillance as they typically have a disproportionate effect on black and racialized individuals. As such, they become the classification of blacks. It becomes a key characteristic of capital exchange, as well as health, education, and other institutional policies. As Haggerty and Erickson describe, the moving about between environments and activities that has become a key characteristic of postmodern life has also become a source of value to be realized on the market for commodified information. With the power of statistics, Gandhi warns that while data renders individuals visible for governance, it has very real and immediate effects on the life chances of black and racialized individuals. According to Gandhi, the regulatory effects of data as marked by race, gender, and social economic bias disadvantage some populations while privileging others, even though both are often read discursively as if they exist under the same universal scope of power. So we can see Gandhi here is picking up on, on Fanon's divergence from Foucault. Transactions of the everyday, from credit card transactions, online payments, and browsing habits, customer reward programs, barcode scans, digital access points, biometric sampling to job applications, and drug testing are just a few examples of the means by which blacks are targeted for exploitation, discrimination, redlining, criminality, and suspicion. As Gandhi suggests, any discourse on the biopolitical impact of data should extend beyond the general sites of data to consider how the inequitable distribution of power aligns with the inequitable impositions of race and capitalism. Gandhi's critique of statistics is warranted, given the role mathematics has played in the ordering of life. Laplace had already shown that early, early studies in probability theory by Pascal and Fermat could be used to demonstrate universal lines of reason. Although Pascal and Fermat were, were primarily interested in assessing probability through gambling risk, it was Laplace who first introduced the idea of statistical succession, or the notion that an underlying probability could be estimated with few direct observations. Interestingly, Laplace experimented with his proposition using the court of law in the criminal justice system. By applying the rule of secession to data collected from archived jury decisions, Laplace theorized that one could state with a given amount of certainty 
even though they have not directly observed the action, the likelihood that a juror would assign innocence or guilt to a subject. Laplace's model introduced elements of perceived certainty into an otherwise dynamic and contingent legal system. His model was one of preemption. It made use of mathematics to correlate seemingly disparate details of dynamic life. In the case of jury decisions, the formula took into account historical data on various types of material evidences and their influences on individual jury perceptions. The rule of secession did not stand in for the law of the people, as was, th as was thought desirable, but for a new overriding law of nature and the divine that, as Laplace argued, was more robust than its, contingent, than its more contingent human counterparts. Laplace believed that if one could only funnel the patterns of nature, the information of nature into symbolic form, then other behavioral phenomenon, from the single jury decision to the regular movement of the sun, could be calculated and predicted with verifiable certainty. Now, Laplace's actual mathematic attempts um, were a failed project. But these attempts at regulating the dynamism of human decision-making succeeded in reinforcing a mode of thought, a mode of knowledge that the phenomenon of individual and collective life, despite its seemingly erratic unfolding, was merely a derivative of a single simple, simple substance of nature and what Winter would describe as the quest towards the divine. As a result, the individual state of being was thought to materialize at the limits of scientific, scientific observation. It was furthermore subordinate to, to the existence, a law above and beyond the specificities of each individual's life. Now, Laplace's magic theory here had great influence on later statistical theory in the management and organization of variability. For instance, in Bayesian probability, which is a simple mathematical formula that reduces complex variables into symbolic representations of probable truth. Variable estimates can be adjusted on the basis of dynamic observational assumptions. The result is the further simplification of data into more manageable variables that are easier to calculate. Bayesian reasoning is an essential tool in machine learning and artificial intelligence research today, which operates in highly complex and contingent environments is an attractive tool for machine learning and AI researchers since the, techniques since the technique enhances computational speed while optimizing algorithmic power. So basically, statistics, the field of statistics and machine learning um, accelerated in parallel. And it's very difficult to distinguish between statistics and machine learning because they both use techniques from each field um, to further their senses of analysis. But machine learning in particular can, has an extra advantage from statistics in that it can use statistical modes such as Bayesian and reasoning to reduce complex environments. So all of you can be reduced to a data point and a pattern of behavior. But machine learning gains additional attraction because by reducing this dynamic behavior, they can increase computational efficiency. And given Laplace's prior attempts to substantiate a new theory of probability from within the criminal justice system, it is no surprise that statistics has found its way into the contemporary racialized episteme of machine learning, the cousin of statistics. 
In machine learning and artificial intelligence, probabilities raise additional concerns about scale. Large-scale applications can consist of hundreds or thousands of variable inputs, each holding their own margins of error. Stacking these error risks, extending probabilistic determinations beyond what is justifiable. In other words, they attempt to reduce abstraction. Nonetheless, Abu Mustafa et al. argue that a probabilistic view can produce satisfactory results without assumption outside of those produced independently of hypothesis. And so what I'm picking up is the history of development of statistics where the accountability for the result of statistics is now shifted from the intuition of the actual statistician into the process of symbolic mathematics. Abu Mustafa insists that as long as engineers use the same distributions consistently for each problem set in each stage of learning, prior knowledges are unnecessary in the production of insight. They assert that debates on the subjective are misaligned with the aims of probabilistic learning, as probability, probabilities are not expected to replicate target functions perfectly from their origin. So within the statistical process, it is already recognized even prior to the reduction of the social that is an imperfect system, which of course, which of course is in dissonance with logics that symbolic mathematics actually carry with them an objective truth. Instead, they contend that probabilities are meant to approximate correlation in controlled environments that somehow never reaches the political system, right? That word approximate. With an awareness that performance outside of the laboratory may vary. To the contrary, critics assert that the fragility of these types of human hypotheses originate in the priority they place on scientific judgment. Humean inductive reasoning prioritizes the number of observable instances in establishing a relationship with the production of knowledge. For Hume, scientific judgment is based on the probability of observable outcome. The more instances, the more probable the predicted conclusions. So in other words, this, this is actually a fundamental base of even the um, predictive text in Google search, the number of instances that someone searched a stereotype for black women, the number of times it will see that as the establishment of truth. Michael Wood has written that without a more complete understanding of the role of the subjective within the determinations of probabilities, they remain assessments of ignorance and judgment. Wood states, quote, if for practical reasons, samples are not selected randomly, the question then arises of whether they can reasonably re be regarded as if they were selected randomly. This is a matter of judgment. The matter of judgment is what Gandhi sees as the fundamental determinant of subject position. Gandhi states, quote, how we evaluate people, places, and things in terms of their departure from what we have defined as the norm is often a fundamental determinant of the position they will come to occupy and still other distributions that we have yet to consider. It is worth it at this juncture to return to the wider logics of enumeration that have informed these processes, what Winter describes as the eugenic descent or the operational decline imposed by the colonial episteme. Winter's adoption of this point of reference extends the artificiality of regulated variables into the substances of class, sex, orientation, and race. 
Her claim is sustained by the creation of what she describes as a eugenic, dysgenic selection. The coherence of racialized attributes in this sense, what I call the fictive substance of race, links the dynamic instrumentalization of coherence found in the bioepisteme to the, quote, discursive negation of co-humanness. In this way, I draw closer to validating Fanon's claim that colonial perception is the discursive practice that is itself maintaining in its, I'm sorry, that is self-maintaining in its capacity to empirically self-justify. Fanon also stipulates that the apparatus of empiricism, such as the assembly line and discretization of time, are appropriated to enact the management and organization of space. These apparatuses speak to the materialization of certain components and processes. They are not, however, a sufficient account of the logics that enable the operation of empirical thought. I argue that empirical objects and processes, these processes that Winter and Fanon describe, are underwritten by the accumulation, management, and classification of data derived from the system of contemporary observation. This is an important claim since Winter and Fanon are less explicit about the origin of empirically enabled data. I argue that these violences are crucial components, even unwittingly, in the operation of artificial intelligence and machine learning. My goal, given the roles of bioepistemic epidermalization and white prototypicality in organizing space and time, is to understand what capacities machine learning and artificial intelligence then have to reinforce and reinstate the colonial imaginary. This is important since, as Adrian McKenzie argues, quote, machine learning today, machine learning today circulates into domains that lie afield of the eugenic and psychological laboratories, industrial research institutions, or specialized engineering settings in which they first took shape. In this way, our contemporary encounters with data extend well beyond notions of design, ease of use, personal suggestions, surveillance, or even privacy. They take on new meaning if we consider the underlying principle of mathematics as the engine that drives data towards languages of normality and truth prior to any operational discomforts or violence. So what are we to do in our current empirical reality? Or I could say data-informed life. How are we to disrupt the distributions of power that are amplified by data and advanced by artificial learning systems? It is here that I think through the object, the black object as the technical object, borrowing from Simondon, as a site of affirmative potential, or kinetic dissonance and dynamic incoherence at the basis of being in itself. If we are to consider the photogenic object in contemporary spaces of algorithmic culture, it is apparent that the black technical object is always already preconditioned by the effective pre-logic of race that functions on the level of the psyche. The possibility of an affirmative engagement between the black technical object and the algorithm is then limited by the necessity to reconcile the psychic potential of the racialized individual with that of a predetermined technical structure. Although the immediacy of computational's lack of diversity in terms of institutional value and algorithmic function cannot be understated, we must resist. 
a call to make black technical objects compatible to machine learning and artificial intelligence algorithms risks the further reduction of the lived potentiality of black life. As I have argued, the consequences for the black technical object are immense. It must be asked if the black technical object could be conceptualized outside of the dialectic between human and machine. Is there such a thing, borrowing from Fred Moten and Stefano Harney, as an aspirational black life that can gain a right of refusal to representation? As such, would a universal computational gaze limit the self-determination of those that have little or no desire for inclusion in machine perception? Without a wider scope, debates on these matters remain incomplete in their characterization of algorithmic prejudices and social discriminations. Attempts at reconciling this arguably unsettled debate rely on a commitment to sufficiently characterize the constitution of a more affirmative process of machinic existence that can gain a totality in relation to artificial modes of perception. My proposal asks us to consider what is overlooked in machine learning and AI research, and instead consider it as already an act of colonial thought. In doing so, my hope is to dislodge both the ontological and functional processes of both from their roots in substantialist metaphysics and Aristotelian modes of truth. Machine learning and AI here necessitate a new reflexive position that can generate alternative levels of operation. A revision of this field demands a return to the systems of relation from the perspectives of a multivalent, non-white-centered mode of reality. I draw on Gilbert Simondon's concept of psychic and collective individuation to argue that the reconciliation of black being, the black technical object as such, does not deny historical negation, but can, through this duress, generate new forms of being and becoming. Simondon argues that, quote, psychic and collective individuation incessantly and persistently creates being as it advances maintaining in each created or individuated scope of being. I locate my argument here to suggest that although difference brings forth a consistency of relations between objects, be they human, technological, or structural, these relations are not predeterminate. To the contrary, difference presupposes the material presence of contradiction and compatibility. Here we can imagine a technical object, a black technical object that develops an indifference to description or any other form of artificial representation or in this sense, colonial representation. It would maintain, as has been illustrated in the black abstract paintings of Jack Whitten, a radical diversion from the prototypical figure to confront the hard lines of truth. And here I'm working through um, currently working through a research project. So in a way, this is type of an experimental space to look at the actual production and the thought of black abstract art as a way to break free from a representational mode of thinking. And Jack Whitten was, was very prominent in thinking through the duress of blackness, thinking through the duress of a racialized experience imposed by colonialism, slavery, and imperialism, and trying to articulate that duress through a general aesthetic, which is not dependent upon a reflection of that violence back onto the self. And so we see in Whitten's work, we see a texturing, 
a different type of layering that picks up on different facets of black life. And here in his uh, series on the skin, it becomes a very textured type of work, picking up on the bumps of the skin, the genealogy of hair, looking at the creases and the cracks and so on and so forth, and representing that as the excess of black existence. So if we were to take this radical diversion from the prototypical figure to confront these hard lines of truth, then I'm argue that we enter into a new space of relation. And here, if symbolism is enacted, it is not in the service of mathematics, but in the abstraction of black life itself. And we can see here this homage to Malcolm X in 1970 of thinking about actually what is the century effective mode of black being that can then, that can then subsequently be reduced to an aesthetic form as opposed to reducing the contingency of black life prior to its expression. As Witten, state, as Witten states in his 1970s painting, Homage to Malcolm X, shown here, it would have to be something that would enact, quote, that feeling of going deep down into something, and in doing that, being able to capture the essence of what it is. And these are my nerds' words now of what blackness, the black body, black existence is all about. Black being as such actualizes as an experience that is lived from both within and in excess of artificial modes of perception and the fictive imaginaries of race. The act of transformation here challenges the state of homogeneity and the perceived stability of category to instead engage in a transformative politics of affirmative self-belonging, what bell hooks might call a communion, where the entropic individual exceeds the barriers of social relation to enter an alternative space of becoming, made possible by a reimagining of the self. In other words, the unusable, uncommon, and thus incomputable individual potentializes the social space towards new ways of relating and relation. As journalist Alex Greenberger writes of Witten's work, Witten util utilized an unconventional process for which we would lay the canvas on the floor, drag a squeegee across them to mix his color, and then let the paint dry. Paint was piled on as much as a quarter inch thick in many of them, and all of, them, and all of the tones Witten chose were left visible. With their warped, colorful forms and their unclear geometries, they resemble long exposure photographs of things in motion. And I argue, what is black life? What is racialized life other than something that is in, in motion? Greenberger goes on to write, Witten relinquished some control over his canvases, leaving the final result to chance in some respects, to test the ways that time and tools affected the painting process because became Witten's mandate. And Witten's later work, of course, he is trying to grapple with the digital before his death. And here's 2011, his apps for Obama um, on, on tile and canvas. What if we were to take Witten's mandate at face value as we confront the duress of artificial intelligence? 
in much of the same way that Witten addressed the suffocating atmosphere of race and racism in the 1960s. And it's worth noting that the Black Abstract Movement in the 1960s created a diversion, particularly in the United States, amongst what actual art meant within the Black political context. And so you had this break between Black abstraction and Black representation. And then, of course, a subsuing debate that starts to think through, is this type of articulation enough to enact a change in a Black political circumstance? And so what I'm trying to pick up here is thinking through how the relationship and the actual function of Black life as already in excess of being might itself articulate a new mode of relation with the machine, which we know statistically, even mathematically, it is capable of. And then we must ask if machine learning were less gestural forms of abstraction, using Witten's words, but closer to what is called conceptual painting, what then might emerge? In this situation, it is possible that there is no destination towards the reinstatement of a pre-existing human category, but a journey towards the condition by which something new can emerge. Thank you.